You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So Julian of Norwich, she is a mystic, and she is a mystic from a very interesting time period. And and, uh, I thought, well, there's no better person to tell us about Julian of Norwich than my good colleague, Sharon Lauder. And so Sharon has been studying Julian of Norwich. She's immersing herself in Julian of Norwich. And she is going to lead us in Julian of Norwich tonight. And so I'm going to pray and we're going to hand things over to Sharon. She's unmuted. That's good. Lord, we lift up Sharon to you. Guide her and direct her as she uh, helps us understand your servant, Julian of Norwich. In Jesus' name, amen. Over to you, Sharon. Can you hear us? You're good? Yes, I can. All right. Can everybody hear Sharon? Thumbs up. Yeah. Okay. Okay, that's great. So thank you for having me tonight. I'm just going to share my screen and I'll try and respect your time. There we go. And Okay, so tonight, yeah, we're looking at Julian of Norwich, who lived in the 14th century and a bit of the 15th. And uh, the idea is turning our eyes on Jesus like Julian did. Uh, let's see. Um, so basically, we look at Julian, and so I've looked at three translations. Um, basically, what I'll be doing is I'll be taking, uh, most of my quotes will be coming from the third, which is the Penguins classic, and uh, that's the one I'd recommend if you're going to read Julian that you look at. Okay, that's the one I would suggest. Okay, so I'm just going to see if I can mute this. Okay, so yeah, she is... Um, she is associated with St. Julian's Church in Norwich in England. At the time she lived, that would have been the third largest city in England. Um, so basically, unfortunately, it was her feast day on May 8th, but it was closed because of uh, COVID, like everything here. Um, you can go in, though, to light candles for reflection, but there's no public services. Okay, so we're looking at Mother Julian. Now, who was she? So, of course, as David said, she was a 14th century mystic. Um, But the interesting thing is, we don't know her real name. She took her name from the church um, instead of uh, the church being named for her. And we have very little biographical trace of her. She's known for writing one book, The Revelations of Divine Love, which is also known as Showings, based on a series of visions she had of Jesus. And she was what we call an anchorite or the female form an anchoress, which is from the Greek word meaning to withdraw. And that is a famous uh, window. Um, and basically it says, all shall be well. And that's what she was famous for saying. Okay, that's the basically we take from her book. Okay, so we look at the life of an anchoress. So this is a life of intentional solitude. It was usually a laywoman or a nun who decided that she would um, set herself away or retire. Um, so they chose to live in seclu- a life of seclusion and devotion to prayer. So she lived in an enclosed cell next to the sanctuary of that church in the city of Norwich. Now, she wouldn't know what she was getting into because the anchoring rule that she would have followed was written in the 12th century. So what would have happened is there would have been a ceremony much like a funeral service. And then um, she would have been read the last rites and she would have been sealed up into the room almost like as if she was being sealed in for her death. Um, so basically within this room, it would be sealed up, but there would be three windows. There would be one window into the church where, um, she could see the service. She could take part in the mass. She could receive communion or the Eucharist. There'd be another window 
onto the city of Norwich where people could come to her and get counsel or get prayer. And there'd be another window. And through that window, she would receive everything she needs and pass out anything she'd need to. She'd get her meals. She'd get her laundry taken out so that she could devote herself to intercessory and to contemplative prayer and to counsel. And basically, this is what she did. Um, so let's look at the time she lived in. You can see from the plaque that's put on the side of the church that she became an anchoress after 1373, and she was born in 1343. So she's about 30 when this happened. Okay, but we're going to look at the 14th century and what was going on back then. So what was her life, what had been happening around Julian? So the first thing was the great pestilence was what's happened. That was the great plague of the bubonic plague that hit uh, Britain. Now, some sources said between one third and 50% of the population were killed within those two years by the plague. And so um, basically, this was very difficult for Norwich. In fact, it was worse because it was a city. So it was hit even harder. And they think about 7,000 out of the 12,000 people who lived there died. Uh, so this actually caused um, not only every family being hit by death, but the unbelievable economic and labor upheaval because what happened was that now with so many people dying it changed completely the law of um, supply and demand when it came to labor and this started causing a lot of social tension to rise now at the same time what was happening in the 13 in the 14th century was the hundred years war what this didn't mean it didn't mean that norwich itself was say under siege but what it meant was that the king and most of the nobility were just preoccupied with war in france so they weren't really dealing with this economic and this labor upheaval. So this led to civil conflict. And by uh, 1381, there were the peasants' riots. And they took over the palace in Norwich. They raided the monasteries, the churches, the major houses. And then this led to a huge, like an iron fist that came down. And the bishop of the city um, basically had the leader of the peasants drawn, quartered, hung. And then he ruled the city with an iron fist until he didn't because of all the religious strife going on. Because what happened was at this point, it was the great schism. And we had two popes, one in Avignon and the other in Rome, both calling each other the Antichrist. And this, the Bishop of Norwich entered into this and he left the city. At the same time, we had Wycliffe in Britain and um, he was calling for things like an end to indulgences, to having the Bible available in the English language rather than in Latin. And this called, uh, caused um, a, a response from the church. And basically his followers, the Lollards, started to be persecuted and hounded. And there was a rise in suspicion of anything that could smell like heresy. So this is what was going on like geographically even around Julian because her cell would have been right at the center of the city. But what's interesting is she wrote this book, but the book isn't about these events all going on. It's about divine love. And she writes things like this. For when the soul is in turmoil, troubled and in distress, it's time to pray with the idea of becoming submissive to God. But no prayer makes God compliant to the soul because God's love is always the same. Okay, so that's interesting. In this day and age where there is almost the tyranny of the present, where the idea is you have to be um, constantly watching what's happening and reacting to what's happening that she is instead, her whole book you read about it, you wouldn't know it's from this period of time because she writes in this timeless way about God and his love for us. Okay, so what made her become an anchor? What made her write this book? 
Well, basically, on May 8th in 1373, at one point she was near death. Uh, she was paralyzed with illness and she was so close that the last rites were read to her. But when the priest raised the crucifix before her eyes, she saw the first of 16 visions. Now, she survived, and then after this, she became an anchoress, and she devoted her life to that. Uh, she wrote two versions. The first is a short text she wrote almost immediately. Um, but then she took, say, between 15, 20 years to ruminate over what happened, ruminate over these 16 visions she had over a period of four days of being sick, and then she wrote the long text. So think about that in a day and age where we have Twitter, where some people tweet every day, where the idea is to post constantly. She spent all this time ruminating on what happened before writing the long text. So when I talk about this, I do talk about English in translation, but it's just to be clear, it's because it was written in the 14th century and the language has changed so much since then. And that's why if you also go and try and download it from Kindle or you want to find something on Amazon, you'll see so many different versions, okay? So that's why. So why read the revelations of divine love? Sorry, I just got to move this out of the way for me. Um, so basically... She has something to remind us about, and it's about God and his love for us and how he feels about us, okay? Uh, her visions also, the second thing we're going to look at is they give us perspective, okay? She has a, she got some interesting ways in her visions of how, to, how, how God revealed to her that we should look at what's going on around us, and that's, that's good to look at. Um, her visions remind us that life is, uh, we will have joy and we will have sorrow within this life. But if we keep our eyes on Jesus, we can experience peace regardless of circumstances. Okay? So that'd be the fourth point. We and her fifth point is what she's most known for. Um, is saying, all will be well. The, the vision that God gave her is, all will be well. God will reconcile everything in the end. Okay? So this is what we're going to look at as we go through Julian of I'm going to try to be respectful of your time, and we'll try and get to some points we can stop, and, and David can let us do it. Okay, um, so the first point is what we need to know about God and his love. And the first thing that she realizes is that, and the first thing she sees when she sees the crucifix is this is a God, this is a Christ knows suffering. And when you read it, you're going to find it's quite graphic because um, it's not just that she sees uh, Jesus suffering on the cross. It's that she is seeing um, as his body is falling apart and as his body is failing under this. And it, it can be a little bit uh, quite graphic to read. But what she's trying to, what she sees out of this is in looking on Christ's ravaged body, she sees him taking on our evil and sin. And she writes, it was the image of our vile black mortal covering that hid his fair, blessed Lord. And this is what we kind of give into my thoughts at that time. We pray to God by his holy flesh and by his precious blood, his holy passion, his glorious death and wounds, and all the blessed kindness. The unending life we have from these is his goodness. This is the meaning, as simply as I can explain it, of all these blessed words. Look how much I loved you. And the, the, knowing Christ suffered and that he suffers, that, he un, that we suffer, but he suffers more than that is important as we go through. Another thing that she points out um, 
about God and our understanding of him is God is our mother as truly as he is our father. So in the medieval era, men were associated with rationality and the spirit, and women were associated with emotion and flesh. But God, the visions point out to her, embodies the perfect of the maternal and the paternal. Okay? And even she, quote, she paraphrases Isaiah, can a mother forget her baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she, was, she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. And even mercy and grace, she sees in, in the idea of motherhood, that God is the perfect mother. Um, I was associated mercy with justice. And mercy was not getting what I deserve in that sense. But she associates it with motherhood, that it's tender love and grace in the same love. That mercy is protecting, it's tolerating, it's reviving, it's healing. And grace is more like... Uh, a lordship. It cuts raising up. It's rewarding and going beyond what our love and our effort deserve. And the idea is these things don't make us more powerful. They make us humble and gentle. And that is why we're safe because they're humble and gentle by this. Now, this is another point that Jesus is the perfect mother. Okay. That Jesus is truly our mother who we're truly bound to. And if you see this, this is a reminder of what Jesus, what was recorded both in Matthew and in the book of Luke. Okay. So the idea, the way she sees it, she writes that God gave birth to humanity and then became human himself. And when she writes about it, she writes about the agony of Christ's crucifixion with the agony of childbirth. Okay. And then she also associates our sin and our shame with that of a frightened child. And God's forgiveness is like a mother's comfort. Okay? So if I can quote. But often, when our failing and our wretched sin is shown to us, we are so terrified and so very ashamed that we hardly know where to put ourselves. It's like God, he wants us to behave like a child. For when it is hurt or frightened, it runs to its mother for help as fast as it can. And he wants us to do the same, like a humble child saying, my kind mother, my gracious mother, my dearest mother, take pity on me. Now, I know this might be something new. I don't know different faith traditions here from how new you are to the faith. But uh, maybe, Dave, if you could get people to go into groups and just to think, how do you react to the thought of Jesus as the perfect mother? Okay, so remember, this is what Julian's saying. Mm-hmm. She's, she's got a, quite an interesting uh, perspective. Yeah. So Jesus is our perfect mother. So... How do you, yeah, how do you uh, react to that thought? What are some, yeah, just some comments along the way? I just want to, I just want to ask people um, what your, just just initially what your thoughts were uh, on this idea of Jesus as as mother. Um, Again, we were talking in our group, we understand God, uh, you know, God, you know, created humanity in his image, male and female, he created them. I get that. But Jesus is, is, is incarnated as a male. And for Julian to talk about uh, Jesus as our mother, thoughts on that one? Any, uh, any uh, just initial reflections? I, Un- unmute yourself if you're going to say anything. I, uh, we were talking about it in our group, and, and I was saying that I, I can't think of it in terms of masculine and feminine, um, 
I, I, I have issues with that. Um, to me, um, it's God the Father, and then Jesus is the brother, you know, the Son, and, and the Holy Spirit. But I, don't, I, I think what it shows us is that, you know, these, the things that we assume are feminine or, or are maternal can just be as much a part of a father as they, they can be of a mother. And um, I, yeah, I, I can't conceive of God uh, or Jesus in terms of femininity, uh, but I definitely can see the, 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 the loving comfort and so on. And I think that's, I think that's part of the masculine, the masculine, you know, totality as well. Yeah, very good. Okay, good. Any, maybe uh, one or two other comments and then we'll, we'll go from there. We uh, discussed in our group the same thing about God's attributes and, um, but uh, like what we were saying also, like I suggested that maybe it was a good idea for uh, um, Julian to give people an example that could speak to them. Mm. Like oh, some of them. That's good, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they experienced mother's love in this way. Yeah. Or some of them didn't. And yes. that's what she says. That's how it should look like. If a mother loves you, then she would do all those things for you. Yeah. And that's only in the past century that women actually entered the workforce properly and uh, started to earn their living correctly or not. Still questionable, but anyways. Yeah. So um, that's what, you know, we were kind of talking about. And we couldn't in our group separate God's attributes because uh, he's just too big for us to understand to begin yeah. with. But um, give an example, and it's easier for people to relate. That's, I think, was her purpose. And I'm actually glad she did because women were not praised a lot back then in the 14th century. So, yeah. yeah. That's what I was thinking, too, that maybe at that day and age, it was so, everything was so male dominated. Mm -hmm. It took a woman's voice or a woman's uh, input to to sort of show everyone that the other side that they'd never really looked at before. Okay. Very right. good. Hey, Sharon, do you want to touch on, you know, your, your some of the speculation about Julian before uh, she got, is, is now a good time to talk yeah, about that? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, basically many people who read the section she wrote here, uh, believe that Julian was not a single woman at age 30. She was actually a widow and she lost children and that this is reflected in her writing. And that makes it even more powerful because she doesn't reflect on the fact that she's lost her husband and her children. Instead, she reflects on God's love and God being the perfect mother. And um, in the sense that, yeah, it, it may be, I was prepared for this a little, a little bit because I remember reading about um, Philip Yancey talking about cultures that um, may not be accepting of the Christian God because what's presented to them is the father God and not necessarily the, the loving God that, ex that is exemplified by mother love. And yet he's the perfect love and divine love is perfect in all ways. But no, yeah, there are some that say, if you read these portions that basically, yeah, she had come to that through, through widowhood and through having lost her own children. In the, in the plague, yeah. yeah. Wow, interesting. Yeah, that is some people to think of. So are we ready to move on? Yep. I yep. can share? Okay, great. 
Okay, so sorry, don't know why I did that. So the next thing I said that we would, you'd learn from Julian is the idea of perspective. And so if you see in the picture you have there, what you see is something very small in Julian's hand. And this is indicative of one of the things she saw in her visions and one of them, and it was called the hazelnut vision. And so what it was, was she saw this hazelnut and she said, he showed me a little thing the size of a hazelnut in the palm of my hand. And it was as round as a ball. I looked at it with my mind's eye and I thought, what can this be? And the answer, it came. It is all that is made, the universe and everything that ever was. I marveled that it could last, for I thought it might have crumbled to nothing. It was so small. And the answer came into my mind. It lasts and ever shall because God loves it. And all things have being through the love of God. Um, so one thing Julian pointed out is that think about everything God's ever created has been in that little ball. But think about whatever is preoccupying you right now, how much smaller that is in comparison. Because she says that what happens to us is we end up anxious because we forget the vastness of God's love, as she calls it, the vastness of God's love that keeps all of this going, that keeps all of this working. Um, and we forget that because we get so taken up by the minutiae of life and the little details that that's what leaves us anxious. But it is a little thing compared to the greatness of God, but God made, God loves it, and God keeps it. Okay? So that's the second thing. She, she shows us perspective. Another thing in the visions is she sees what she calls the fiend or the fiends. Now, Julian is paralyzed. She can't move her eyes, um, but often she can tell he's around because of something else from her senses. She can smell his stench. So... There is spiritual warfare. That's one thing that Julian does tell us, that just as we've seen in, um, as David showed in the first night when he talked about um, Pilgrim's project, uh, Progress, this is spiritual warfare. Satan is real, but he's defeated. And he can only do what God permits, for God holds all the devil's powers in his hands. And in fact, she says that Christ's suffering on the cross is actually he's humiliated the evil one. And, and the redemption of humanity, that's what's humiliated him. All the suffering and all the sorrow he would have created has gone to hell with him. And that she, when she sees that and she realizes that, it makes her laugh. And after this vision, though, she also sees the Lord as the Lord of a house with his beloved servants and a wonderful melody of endless love that goes through as they prepare for a feast. And so that's what she sees out of it. Um, she has another vision, and it's the master and the servant. So she sees it, and... She sees it, but she sees it in two ways. And she sees this master and a servant. And it's, it's just, yes, it's, it's, we have trouble maybe identifying that now, being a servant and being a master. But in this vision, these two love each other. The, the master loves the servant with uh, an incredible love, and the servant just wants to serve back. It's a, it's a beautiful symbiotic relationship. And she has her first interpretation. And she sees the servant. He desires to do his, his Lord's will so much. But as he goes to do it, he's injured and he's sullied as he falls into a slough. And a slough would have been like a swamp. Okay? And although his master is close by, he's just there and he's falling. He can't see him. He can't help himself. He can't get himself out of it. Um, and he can't see the master, which is more important. So he ends up miserable. Only his master, who is so close, can save him. And first of all, she sees it as an allegory of sin and of redemption and of salvation. 
And the idea of falling in the slough and it being um, a swamp is the idea of sometimes we fall into these things without realizing we're doing it. Okay, even our best of intentions can lead us in very difficult places and into sorrow. But then she sees it again, but it's another vision she has from it. And she sees a second interpretation. She sees it again, but she sees the servant is also Christ as the second Adam. He's both the master who saves and the suffering servant in the torn clothing. And this time when she sees the vision, his fall is his suffering for us. And his dirty clothes and his wounds are Christ's stripes at this crucifixion. Okay. The third thing that she's very aware of is life is sorrow and life is joy. And in one vision, she kind of rapid cycles, if I could use that word that we use now, she rapid cycles through sorrow and through joy, through sorrow and through joy. And she said, in the moment of joy, I might have said with St. Paul, nothing shall separate me from the love of Christ. And then when she falls into the sorrow, I might have said with Peter, Lord, save me, I perish. But out of this vision, she she wants us to know, she says God wants us to know that he protects us in both sorrow and joy equally. It's not like he's away when joy comes into our life and he rushes back when we're in sorrow. He's there all the time. Um, And she recognizes we can feel sorrow even when sin isn't an issue. And both the experiences can be part of God's love. Okay? Um, So because she's rapid cycled through this, at the end of it, she realizes we shouldn't be guided by feelings of pain, grieving, and mourning. And our bliss will be eternal. And sometimes we think about it in comparison to that. Okay? But this is the point and how we do that is by keeping our eyes on Jesus. By keeping our eyes on Jesus, we can experience peace. And I, contemplating all this through his grace, saw that his love for our souls is so strong that he chose the pain willingly and eagerly and suffered it meekly and well, was well pleased to do so. For the soul who contemplates this way, when touched by grace, shall truly see that the pain of Christ's passion surpasses all pain. That is to say, it surpasses the pains which will be turned into supreme and everlasting joys by virtue of Christ's passion. Okay? I know that can be hard when we're going through things, but when she... In a way, she's saying if we, she she actually doesn't give a lot of explanations for why we suffer or it it claims that there's, you know, a lesson to be learned or how it helps us develop. Um, But that the idea is if we actually contemplated how much Christ suffered for us, it might put us in perspective. And um, Tim Keller said about the same thing this week. He posted something like that as well. Okay, so we can keep that in mind. Shame and despair. So... She found that don't focus on your fall or your shame or despair, but lift your eyes to him. He wants us to turn our eyes to him. He wants to be in love. He wants to love you, wants to be in communion with you, wants a relationship with you. Okay. And when we fall through frailty or blindness, then our king, kind Lord touches us, moves us. And he wants us to see our wretchedness and sinfulness and acknowledge it humbly. Okay. Sorry, I just need to smooth this up. But he does not want us to stop at this point, nor does he want us to be inwardly miserably, inwardly miserable. But he quickly turns our thoughts to him, for he is impatient to have us with him. For we are his joy and his delight, and he is our balm and he is our life. Okay. Now, when this is probably the expression most associated with Julian, and it's point five, all shall be well. 
and I don't know what's going on in your life because, but she, even she um, quite, you know, ruminates on this for quite a while. So she read, said, my good Lord, I see that you are truly itself, truth itself. And I know for certain that we sin grievously every day and deserve to be bitterly blamed. And I can either give up the knowledge of this truth, nor can I see that you show us any kind of blame. How can this be? Because she feels his overwhelming love through this book, through all 86 chapters, she feels his overwhelming love. In her visions, she learns that you shall see for yourself that all manner of things shall be well. And she sees this throughout, all manner of things shall be well. All manner of things shall be well. And she can only proclaim that God's ways are beyond her understanding, any human understanding. And in love, all will be reconciled. All shall be well. But she wonders, like, how can all be well? Because she recognizes Holy Church teaches me to believe that all these, for example, those who've never heard of the Lord, unrepentant sinners, things like this, shall be condemned everlastingly to hell. And given all this, I thought it impossible that all manner of things should be well, as our Lord revealed it at the time. And I received no other answer in showing from the Lord but this, what is impossible to you is not impossible to me. I shall keep my word in all things, and I shall make all things well. So for the next time we break out, this time, how do you respond to this revelation? Okay, so this is a big question. <laughs> it's a very big question. Now, a um, couple things to keep in mind when we have this conversation, how shall all be well, is uh, two things that, uh, Julian says along the way and one is that hazelnut mm. analogy think about that as well as her focus on the suffering Christ and how do they speak into this point that she's making all shall be well I think that that's because it's it's a vision as a whole and I think they all kind of go together okay so there were some questions for contemplation for you to think about well just look at these right now before I go to the next thing um, is there someone who acts as an anchorite for you? Someone, I'm just going to mix metaphors here. Someone who's anchored in the church, anchored in the word, who can pray with you, pray for you, advise you, like someone like Julian would have done back in the day. Um, do you have, if you don't have a companion along the way, what can you do about that? I'd be worried if your companions along the way were um, basically just internet based from somewhere else. Um, Another question might be, are you taking the time you need for worship? Are you taking the time you need for contemplative prayer, for intercessory prayer? Um, yeah, things like that. Um, but basically, um, so I would recommend that you read Revelations of Divine Love, uh, all 86 chapters, but I'll, I'll let you know that they're very short chapters, actually, um, and that Julian wrote it in English. It's the first book written in English by a woman that we know of, and that um, she wrote it in a way that the, the lay person could understand it. Um, it's, there's no call to authorities or um, disputation. It's, it's basically recount her visions and what Jesus told her in the visions. Um, so Revelation's divine love isn't focused on the strife or circumstances of life, but on Jesus and his tremendous love for us. Um, it's a good read for all of us, but in particular, if you know of anybody who has trouble with God being judgmental and um, 
and, and, and a stern father. That would, this would be a good recommendation. Um, particularly if you, and also though, if you wrestle with shame addictions, with the things like unrelenting regrets, um, or if you doubt that God could love you, this would be a good read. Um, it assures us that we can put our eyes on Jesus. We can rest our eyes on Jesus because he wants to be seen. Hmm. He wants to be sought and he wants to be waited for and he wants to be trusted. And that is, I think, the best takeaway from this book. So that's why I'd, I'd recommend it. And, you know, if, if things start feeling better now, the summer's coming, this first wave, if, if you start falling into despair, this would be a good companion on the right. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.